0: Welcome to this episode of To Differ Divine, a podcast about spiritual permeability from the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina, with your hosts, Bishop Sam Rodman, Bishop of the Diocese, and Rabbi Raquel Jerevix, the diocese rabbi in residence and the former leader of Yavna, a Jewish renewal community located in Raleigh. I'm Summerly Walter, the producer for this podcast, and I'll be introducing each episode. In episode three of our Lenten series, Bishop Sam and Rabbi Raquel discussed the nature of forgiveness, both God's infinite, all-encompassing forgiveness, and the much more fraught nature of forgiveness within human relationships. They considered the deeply relational nature of forgiveness and how our limited ability to fully understand another person's heart or to identify the true source of our own pain makes forgiveness so difficult. Throughout the conversation, they explore the ways in which even our limited ability to forgive reflects the grace of God's own forgiveness, a gift freely offered to heal broken connections and to deepen relationships. They do not, however, ignore the reality that, sometimes, a relationship cannot be mended, and we must put down the burden of, as Rabbi Raquel says, dragging somebody else's spiritual formation in our wake. With that, I invite you to enjoy episode three of To Differ Is Divine's Lenten series, An Invitation to Grace.
1: I'm Bishop Sam Rodman here in the Diocese of North Carolina. As we begin our third session in the season of Lent, we are focused on the gift of forgiveness. God's forgiveness of us, our forgiveness of one another, and the way that forgiveness can be an important part of our journey in the life of the Spirit, but also in the life of our relationships. There's a quotation by noted writer and retreat leader Henry Nouwen about forgiveness, which says, forgiveness is God's gift to us who love poorly always loved that line, because it tells me the truth about ourselves that, try as we might, even in our attempts to love, we make mistakes. We do not love in the way that God intended. We do not love in the way that we feel deeply called to love. We fall short. We miss the mark. And that is not the end of the story. But the gift of God to us in those moments when our love falters or fails is the gift of forgiveness. And that's a thread that runs through the biblical narratives in both of our traditions. It's for me an invitation to recognize again and again the tangible reality of God's mercy. For us, we experience that as human beings as the gift of forgiveness, the gift of one who understands one who makes space for us, even when we stray from the way which we are called. It is, in some respects, the embodiment, if you will, of God's grace to us when, in our relationships, we fall short. And for me, the theme of forgiveness in the season of Lent is prominent, because in a season where we're called to self-reflection, to self-examination, to actually take stock of our lives and look at the ways in which we have maybe done what we felt called to do, but in other instances, maybe not, that forgiveness becomes for us the invitation to receive God's grace and God's mercy. In terms of what that means for us in relationships, I can't imagine a life without forgiveness relationships by their very nature and by our very nature always include times where we are estranged, where we are at odds with each other, where we are in open conflict or in certain instances where we actually hurt one another. Not God's intention, not God's desire, not even sure that it would be a part of God's design, and yet it is a part of the reality of our humanness, of our frailty. Of our foibles. And forgiveness becomes a way forward, a way that we can reconnect, a way that we can find each other and, in finding each other, find ourselves again. So, forgiveness in the season of Lent is that opportunity to return or to turn again and to redirect and to refocus, not only on the call to love one another to love God, but as Bishop Curry often reminds us, to love ourselves, to love ourselves in the spirit of God's forgiveness, in the spirit of that grace, in the spirit of the mercy which helps us to recover, to redirect, and to move forward.
2: So I think folks who wonder whether our conversations are scripted could be forgiven for that impression, because as you were speaking, even though we haven't outlined anything other than our own thoughts about the topic, as you were speaking and before you got there, my thoughts were drawn to the commandment, You shall love your neighbor, your area can be a friend, as I think came up in a previous conversation. Neighbor is an ethical category, not a, a geographical category. And that what you are describing in terms of the entanglement of the eternal one and each of us individually and in relationship one to the other is expressed in the very idea that we would receive a directive from God to care for one another in the way we care about our own needs and well-being, again, erasing the very idea of other. And that the reason we are called to do that is because neither of us in that particular equation have greater claim to human worth or dignity or belovedness of our source. So this entanglement of divinity in all of our choices about how we relate to one another is something that I think runs as a kind of harmonic threads through both our scriptures in the sense that we have so many examples of our ancestors imagining how does God respond when we do things that are egregiously contrary to what we've been called to do. I think of the midrashim around God finding a way to show a path, a redemptive path to Cain. For God to come to terms with our capacity to do murderous harm, God's frustration around the time of the flood, a sense that even at the highest levels, there has to be some reckoning with how we deploy our free will. And even as a meta-narrative, as in my mind, The flood story is a kind of a projection of people who are so aware of their own failings that they sometimes can't believe that our species continues from one generation to the next. We often, I think, have reason to say to ourselves, first of all, we're not as evolved as we like to think we are. We're not as smart as we like to think we are. We're not as loving as we are called to be. And I think from how you opened the conversation, Bishop Sam, I'm really drawn to the sense that whenever we talk about forgiveness, we are being drawn into a contemplation of an entanglement that is always greater than that between the two people who might be at odds with one another, who might feel one or the other has wronged them, and that this plays out interpersonally and intercommunally and internationally and and so on. We find all sorts of ways to create barriers to forgiveness. But that doesn't resolve the complexities of forgiveness. It doesn't tell us when we can rightly conclude that an affront is indeed unforgivable. I don't even know what it means to talk about something that God might not forgive, because I have no way of estimating the extent of divine mercy and compassion and understanding, which I would like to assume exceeds my own which has fairly limited range, I will confess. So I'm intrigued by the very notion that I think has its resonances in both our traditions of a kind of preemptive forgiveness. I recall preaching every high holiday season that divine forgiveness is a given, that that's not what we are gathered at this season to be concerned about. We're being called together in community to acknowledge our capacity to harm one another and to find pathways to reconciliation and forgiveness and rebuilding and reconnecting. And that's where the focus needs to be. We don't have to worry about God's capacity to forgive, but we don't know how to forgive ourselves and we often don't know how to forgive other people. And sometimes we are at a loss even to know where that first step might be.
1: That idea that forgiveness is a given, to me, speaks of what I think you called in an earlier conversation, preemptive forgiveness. And I love that construct that forgiveness is there in the mix. It's in the sea that we're swimming in, even before we have need of it. We talk a lot in our respective traditions about the unconditional love of God, but we don't really know what that means. But when you talk about a preemptive forgiveness that is present to us even before we need it, that feels to me like a powerful expression of what unconditional love could look like. And while I certainly struggle, as we all do, with accessing that, especially with respect to my self judgment, my critique of myself, I think we all carry at least one voice and some of us carry several voices that remind us when we have not lived up to our potential or not attained to what we hope for ourselves or for others. The understanding that even that is a place of grace, a place where God's love can intervene and free us from the paralysis of that self judgment. These are all just partial glimpses of the power of forgiveness let loose in the world by the love of God, by the initiative of God. And again, in the context of that permeability, to recognize that that is available to us, even when we don't recognize that it's there. When I think about how that translates in relationships, the opportunity when we've been deeply hurt by someone else to try and hold the possibility of forgiveness And not even our forgiveness yet, because we may be hurt enough that we're not ready for that. But the possibility that forgiveness exists as a force for good in the world and in the sea in which we swim, to me, helps to unlock the parts of us that cannot let go when we've been hurt. And I think we all know what that feels like. We've all experienced that. And sometimes it takes us a while to find that opportunity or that readiness within ourselves. And there again, forgiveness is available to us, even as we make our own journey to find a place within ourselves to forgive another. And that has the quality that, for me, liberates us from our own limitations. You wisely said within myself." there are limits to how much I may be willing or able to forgive. I think that's true of each one of us. But when we run up against the limitlessness of God's forgiveness and God's ability to forgive, it opens up possibilities for us that would not otherwise be there. The other reality for me around the gift of forgiveness is that while we may need to see some kind of change in another's behavior, particularly when trust has been broken, in order to reengage with a person in a relationship, forgiveness can be a step that we choose to take if and when we're ready and able that does not necessarily mean restoring the relationship. It simply means we are no longer having to carry the hurt that we've borne. The forgiveness can be part of what it means for us to be set free from the wound or the injury or the pain that we carry. That, again, as a dynamic in the spiritual landscape in which we find ourselves, is an incredibly powerful and empowering gift.
2: That gift for me can also function as a bit of a stumbling block.
1: Hmm.
2: I have this sense that the process of forgiveness between individuals is meant to engage both parties in a shared opportunity for transformation. But of course, both parties have to be willing to do that. And that's certainly not always the case. And it's as often I would think that the person feeling offended, hurt, damaged, it's as much on their side of things as it can be on the side of the person who has perpetrated this harm but believes that what they did was justifiable, understandable, has forgiven themselves essentially in their own mind they're not in a place where they can recognize that even something we don't intend as an affront might be experienced as an affront, which is one of the many, many things that makes human relationships challenging. We are exceedingly complicated creatures and often operate without full awareness of our own needs, intentions, desires, limitations. So I'm grateful for the structural foundations for a process of atonement and forgiveness that my tradition offers. It's intensely relational. There's a book that was published recently by Rabbi Donya Rutenberg on repentance and repair, and she explores the scholar Maimonides' laws of repentance, and he's come to us from the 12th century. And they're tremendously influential within the Jewish understanding of how does one repair the damage done to others by our own behavior, whether you put it into a category of sinfulness or error, it doesn't really matter. But once you become aware that you've caused this hurt, how do you go about repairing it? So I have an inclination to put a great deal of weight on the responsibility of the person who has caused the harm. And when I reread the list of requirements within Maimonides' structural system for the process of atonement and forgiveness, I realized that while to a certain extent it is a victim-centric process, it doesn't work if both parties cannot engage with one another because sometimes, say, the first step would be to own that you have done a harm. I may not understand how I've done harm if the person I've affronted is incapable of explaining to me the nature of the hurt. It doesn't mean I wasn't intending to harm them, but I might have been trying to harm them in one way, but what I did was damage them in a different way because none of us knows all the complexities of other people's lives. So we all walk around with these big red, don't you dare push this button, red buttons in the middle of our hearts but other people can't see them. And they may intend to push us one way, and they don't know that there's no way they can do that without pushing us right square on that button, setting off all sorts of consequences for us internally. So, our sense as the aggrieved of the nature of the harm is not necessarily even the harm that the individual who may have caused it thinks they caused. So, from the get-go, even though the process looks victim-centered, it is intensely relational that the commitment on the part of the offender to begin to change, to identify how to make amends, to offer an apology, to make different choices going forward, all of these require that offender and victim, victim is not the best choice of word in this system, have to be engaged. And if they're not both able to engage, the process cannot yield the outcomes that we might hope for. I'm deeply concerned about the role of accountability and the amendment of our life's relationships, how those things figure in. How do I fix something if I can't even identify for the person who hurt me why I'm so devastated by what they did? How do I offer a satisfactory repentance when I can't understand what it is I'm repenting for in terms of the person I've offended? And the complexity of that leads me to this lovely Hasidic anecdote where one fellow says to his friend do you love me? And his friend says, of course I love you. Well, if you love me, tell me what causes me pain. I don't know what causes you pain. Ah, you don't love me yet. And there's a poignancy in that, this sense that loving someone else, even loving ourselves, would require us to know where we hurt. And that's not easy. It is sometimes with great shock that I discover what I thought I was upset about is not anywhere in the zip code of the real problem. So that's an aspect of the dynamic of atonement and forgiveness that occupies a lot of my reflection.
1: I appreciate the complexity, but also the depth that you just described in that relationship and the connection between forgiveness and love and what it means to actually. Understand another to the degree that you have that sensibility and sensitivity to who they are, to where they're vulnerable, and to what they're needing. And I do think that is the trajectory of love in in any relationship to go deeper in that mutual understanding. But getting there is fraught, and that's what I hear you describing. And I think that is true for the relationships that are a part of my life, and I'm sure yours and all kinds of different relationships within my own family, extended to friends, to people I work with. And for me, the gift of forgiveness is what actually allows me to navigate that with enough grace and freedom to take the risk to get it wrong. Because sometimes the only way we learned to know what really is at the heart of another person or where their deepest vulnerability lies Is by trying to have that conversation or trying to explore and actually getting it wrong and then finding a way forward together. And that to me is very much a part of what the gift of forgiveness offers to us, which is related to, but as you pointed out, distinct from how do we then amend our behavior or change the way that we interact? And for me, that is as important. And probably more important, if the relationship is going to build trust. But it does feel to me that in the relationships that I hold dear, often the phrase that comes to mind is by in direction, find direction out. And I often feel that in relationships. The other image that comes to mind is bumper cars. We bounce off each other until we find the place where we can settle in and where there's enough trust and enough mutual understanding to go deeper in the relationship. But the getting there can be quite bumpy, and forgiveness can help us to navigate that bumpiness. For me, that is where it doesn't make me careless. It just makes me appreciative of that grace.
2: You earlier mentioned the blessing that can come. When we are able to unburden ourselves of the weight of anger or frustration or a desire for revenge, when dealing with someone who has hurt us, who is never going to seek our forgiveness, that at a certain point, we can relieve ourselves of the responsibility to fret about how the relationship might be repaired. If we don't have a relational partner for doing that work, I think that one of the great challenges is in understanding that within the largest context of relationship and entanglement that we have with the Holy One and all that is sourced within divinity, that larger forgiveness for our trying to figure out our own nature and dumping into things in the process, as you just described, that's comforting it's very difficult often to say, I will forgive because God forgives. I perhaps could even say to myself, you should forgive because God forgives. And if God didn't forgive you for being who you are, where would you be? That may be true. And at the same time, I may still feel, ah, but there's still that twinge. There's still that pain when I think about this incident or that and the irreparability of certain relationships that pain is persistent. So I think that bringing ourselves into this space where we are willing at least to put down the burden of dragging somebody else's spiritual formation in our wake. If an individual we no longer can interact with comfortably doesn't have the desire or capacity to re-engage with us in a way that will allow for some transformation for both of us, that ceases at some point to be our responsibility. That's a different equation than when somebody is desperately desirous of our forgiveness and we can't figure out how to offer it. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: My sense is that when that happens, at least permitting oneself to go through the motions of a process in which you let yourself be willing to hear them out, You at least allow yourself to be willing to have mutual friends intercede. You at least be willing to hear, if you are part of a religious community, what sort of support, encouragement, spiritual direction, and I use that as a technical term, not here's what you must do, but a process of uncovering one's deepest spiritual needs. That if you allow yourself to participate in those things, because you don't give up your free will in that process, and you may still be in a place at the end where you have to say, I'm not there yet. Mm -hmm. And at the very least, the person seeking the forgiveness that you can't offer is unburdened of the need to try to do that work alone. Mm -hmm. Some things are an impasse. Buddhist friends like to say, when you come up against a dilemma, sit with it with whatever comes up. It's good advice, because nothing in this universe is static. So what I can't do today, perhaps I can do some other time. So I remain grateful that there are processes, and deeply grieved, personally, when there are situations where the capacity to make use of that process is not undertaken. that is, there's not a willingness from one side of this human struggle or the other to make use of it to the extent one can. It doesn't mean it won't end up in impasse, but if you do nothing, you can wind up stewing in some deeply unhelpful emotional places that don't lead to any kind of consolation or lightening of the very real burden of trying to live by the guidance that we have been offered. One of my touchstone verses is Leviticus 18.5. We are to live by the commandments. So whenever I hear somebody go on about, yeah, well, God gives you blessings, but then you get curses. I'm thinking, well, maybe I get blessings, you know, in an almost automatic way when I make choices that seem more in alignment with the divine guidance I've received. And there are consequences when I choose not to follow that guidance. Not that my ancestors may have necessarily gotten the divine word perfectly transmitted from the Holy One down to me, but I know that in my tradition, we get to wrestle with that and with the possibility of some other way of looking at any of the commandments. So I have something to wrestle with. I can figure that out. If I see a a blessing and its concomitant consequence make no sense to me, I have something to work with there. I have something to work with relationally all the time because I have inherited a foundational structure transmitted through Maimonides and other teachers that says, well, here are some steps to take. And ideally, they will lead to that internal transformation for both parties. But that rebalancing does require both parties, and sometimes one or the other simply can't do it.
1: And there's deep wisdom in the grace that you named, which is to allow oneself or the other to take the time and the space they need to find their readiness for that next step. And that to me brings together both the gift and opportunity of forgiveness alongside of the other things that you named that are so important in a reconnecting and a deepening of relationship, which are accountability, amendment of life, a recognition of what the other is needing from us, or vice versa. And all building, I think, in a very powerful way to the promise that is also a part of this season of Lent, which is reconciliation, which is the focus of our next conversation. So, forgiveness is a gift, and it would appear not an end in and of itself, but a step toward those other qualities that are necessary for true reconciliation. I look forward to our conversation next time as we talk about the promise of reconciliation.
0: We hope you'll join us in two weeks, the Wednesday of Holy Week, as we wrap up our special Lenten series.